take a copy of the scriptures, either the one provided for you or the one that you've brought, and open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy will be in chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 6. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If books come in parts, we've completed a first division with chapter 1 and a second division with chapters 2 and 3. And now we begin the rest of the body of the letter, which we'll conclude at the end of chapter 6. Today's text, proof of how bad we are and proof of how good God is. Let's read together. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Well, I look forward in the course of preaching a series to preaching every sermon in the series. Uh, Some weeks I want to preach one three weeks out. Some weeks I want to preach the one right in front of me. I always want to preach the one right in front of me, excuse me. Uh, But sometimes my heart is uh, split a couple couple ways. Uh, And a few weeks ago, a headline caught my attention that I flagged for this morning's sermon. French Museum discovers half of its collection are fakes. That's a bad day. (laughs) Here's from the piece in the Telegraph. A state-owned French art museum has discovered that more than half of its collection consists of worthless fakes. An art historian raised the alarm after noticing that paintings attributed to one artist showed buildings that were only constructed after the artist's death in 1922. Experts confirmed that 82 of the 140 works displayed at this particular museum, the artist's birthplace in southern France, were fakes. The mayor said, It's a catastrophe. I put myself in the place of all the people who came to visit the museum, who saw fake works of art, who paid an entrance fee. It's intolerable, and I hope we find those responsible. Detectives suspect that other museums may also contain large numbers of forged works attributed to southern French artists. A a source close to the investigation said, We know that there have been a lot of forgeries circulating, and we believe that well-organized networks are behind this. Art experts estimate that at least 20% of paintings owned by major museums across the world may not be the work of purported artists. Well, there is another great catastrophe. There is another kind of forgery, a forgery of a far greater consequence, a forgery with a far greater defrauding of those who come to it, coordinated by a far crueler and organized network, represented in today's text, 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what? To deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We can call this the the catastrophe of apostasy. Some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to the teaching of demons. And how could people be so fooled where they don't think it's the teaching of demons? They think it's the truth and they are deceived. Instead, they'll simply and subtly and slowly forget that God is good. And you and I are ever in danger of simply and subtly and slowly forgetting that God is good. That is the crux, verse 4, for everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Well, who can we call on to stop this? Who can we call on to prevent this kind of departure and trickery and deceitfulness? Well, someone who knows the truth and knows it well, and someone who has the character and the fortitude to stop deceivers, even when that's not popular, see verse 6. Who can we call on? Well, Paul writes to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul has someone on the ground at Ephesus to protect that church from this kind of trouble. This is what Timothy is there for. And he's there to appoint qualified elders. And this is what the elders would be would be therefore charged with the oversight of the flock, with teaching the whole counsel of God, with leading and guarding the sheep. And this is what our elders here at Heritage Bible Church are, are here for. Elders are what we call pastors, our spiritual leaders of the church. And the spiritual leaders of the church are in the first place theological leaders. They're theological leaders. We're calling this sermon today, Elders as Theological Watchdogs. Not theological junkies, not ivory tower theologians, but theological watchdogs. Watchdogs protect. They know what to guard and they know what to attack. They're sensitive to indications of trouble because they know how precious is the one that keeps them. They run headfirst into trouble to protect what is precious to them because it's what they do. If in chapter one, we heard of the glorious gospel of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners, even the foremost of sinners, then there is hope for us. There's hope for us in the true gospel, the only gospel that saves. And if in chapter 3, we learned about the qualifications for this office of elder by which, whereby God leads his people, his church, in the truth. Then in chapter 4, we start into some of the responsibilities of an elder. We really don't get into the nuts and bolts of how to execute the work 
on the ground floor in the first century, but we get into the broad responsibilities of eldering, of pastoring. And as theological watchdogs, as we'll see, elders are involved in three kinds of watchfulness. Three kinds of watchfulness. Three kinds of watchfulness you need to look for in your elders. Three kinds of watchfulness elders you need to be tending to, ever tending to. Three kinds of watchfulness to to pray for in your, your leaders. And three kinds of watchfulness to give yourself to if you aspire to the office of elder. First, elders watch their words. Elders watch their words. Let's start at the bottom and then work our way up. Verse six, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. A good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is what distinguishes elders as we've learned from deacons. Elders must be, by matter of qualification, able to teach the word, which means the word must be clear enough in their own head and out of their own head as they speak to make the word more clear for the people of God and not confusing. It is not an elder who, when he speaks, makes you think that he's so profound because you don't understand him. It is an elder who speaks and makes profound things plain. And that's what he wants. Elders are trained in the words, words of a certain kind. These are words of the faith, words revealed in the Old Testament and through the apostles and prophets in our New Testament, words which the Spirit has expressly said. Words of a certain quality. These are words that are of good doctrine. Through the words like these that we know what God is like and and not like. We know what our, our true problem really is and that we know the true solution in Christ. Words, as will become obvious to us, that require time and investment and sweat. These men are trained in the words. They're invested. You may go to the gym. You may work on a degree. These things take time and these things take training. And elders must be trained in the words of the faith. And these words are worked out in a certain life. These words which he says you have followed. Elders are not merely wise men in the church. They are not merely well-respected men. They are not merely loving men. They are not merely servant-hearted men. Oh, they must be all of these things. But they are in the first place, and along with these, men of words. And they are men of the word as well. For they are not merely men who understand words and can teach them, but men who have followed and are following these words speaking them with their lips and keeping them with their legs, with their lives. Now, let's state the obvious here at this point on this matter of truth and the faith and and good doctrine. All of this means that there is a such thing as the faith. It is our faith, but it is more than a personal faith. It's the only faith. It's the faith. And there is a such thing as good doctrine and sound doctrine and unsound doctrine and bad doctrine. 
And this is why elders need to be trained in the words of the faith because of the words coming at us from every other place, including from within our own hearts, are not words of the faith and are not good doctrine, which means truth is not relative to the person or to people or a people. Truth is true regardless of the person or the people that holds them. The history of the world indeed is it not a history of the search for truth. It's a history of the search for truth. Modernism was pretty sure it found it. Whether through empiricism or rationalism, truth was reachable. There was a foundation on which you could build and understand and know truly. But then the world, or at least the West, gave it up. And today, the air that we breathe, whether we want to put a name on it or not, is postmodernism. It's that age that has given up on the idea that you can actually know anything. The idea that you can have a foundation on which to construct a clear and a true understanding of the way the world and what humans really are. The way the world really is and what humans really are and what ultimate reality really is. Truth as social construct. But friends, we can appreciate the corrective that postmodernism offered to the arrogance of modernism. Humans were indeed arrogant to assume they could get to truth in an unbiased and final way through the senses, through experimentation, through their rationale. But while it puts its finger on an idol of modernism, it makes its own. The problem with modernism was not that it thought there was true truth or that there indeed was a foundation for all truth. The problem is where it sought that foundation, in man and not in God, in man and not in revelation. But here Paul says, the spirit expressly says, and so you and I are a people Finite in our minds, yes. Fallen in our interpretation of things because of our own sin. But we are a people that believe there is a such thing as true truth. And we find that the foundation of truth is not in our best thinking. It's not in our best testing. It's in revelation itself. It's in what the Spirit expressly says. And elders are men of words. Words of the Spirit inspired in the very word of God. Men who know there is truth to stand on and there is one who is truth himself and that apart from truth, there is no hope for us and that the best way to explain the hopelessness that surrounds us everywhere is in the quest for truth that has been given up, but we have it. Elders know this. Elders are men who watch their words. Why? For the same reason that God gave us the word, because of you, because of you. Elders watch their words second, because elders watch out for you. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, then you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He's trained in the words of the faith. Jesus, you see, needs servants who will serve him by training themselves in his words. And an elder is not a good servant of Christ Jesus if he is not trained in words and if he's not willing to speak words. 
Why aren't good men who love Jesus and his people enough for eldership? Yes, the men will need to be godly. That's for the next sermon, verses 7 through 12. He says, train yourself for godliness. He says, set an example for the believers in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. But look with me to verse 16 of chapter 4. Look with me to verse 16. He says this, keep a close watch, Timothy. Keep a close watch on what? On yourself, that is your life, and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, in other words, if you don't keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching, Timothy, Trent, elders at Heritage Bible Church, you could lose both yourself and your hearers. Everything is staked on the fact of truth and on the fact of its foundation, the scriptures. My dog is not a watchdog. He is a nice family dog. He's not a watchdog. I don't trust him. That's not an encouragement to you to break into my house. If you break into my house, though, he will welcome you to the house. He will want your affirmation. He won't want to bother you. He won't want to make you feel like you aren't welcome. He's not a watchdog. He's not safe. Anyone can get in if my dog is at the door. Friends, my dear hearers, as he calls you, it is so far easy for us, your elders, to keep a close watch on the budget merely and not more important things. It is so easy for us to keep a close watch on the programming and the processes which are all prudentially designed to to yield and protect the word here. It is so easy for us to keep a close watch on our our inboxes. But those things don't ultimately save you. So for your part, be the kind of hearers that know your life hangs on the lives and the teaching of your spiritual leaders. Be the kind of hearers that give thanks to God for the truth that you hear when you hear it. And if you're used to hearing truth week in, week out, don't get used to that and take it for granted, for it is that which saves you. Be the kind of hearers who remind your leaders of how important their example and their teaching is. And be careful about thinking and speaking in ways that tempt others and your leaders to think other things are more important than this. Part of a pastor's job is to regulate the things that he has coming in. An elder's job is to regulate and to manage the inputs they have coming in and to properly slot them according to God's word. Lest we chase every whim and thought of the congregation and forget that thing on which we are built, the truth of the word. So participate in the health of the church by praying for, encouraging, and supporting us and holding us to this central, most important task of teaching the word of God. And if you'd aspire to be an elder, aspire in the first place to this task. Well, what happens if we don't teach our brothers and sisters? 
What happens if we don't teach our brothers and sisters as elders? Well, someone else will. Look at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Elders watch their words. Elders watch out for you. And third, elders watch out for trouble. We watch out for trouble. And now we'll work from verse one through five. There's a constructive aspect to an elder's teaching ministry. When, when Paul wrote to Titus, a different pastor in Crete, he gave qualifications for elders and he said this, that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's the constructive aspect. There's also a, a defensive aspect to his work, he says, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Look with me at verses 1 through 5 here. I see, I see a chain of trouble, a chain of trouble, and it starts in, in verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. How does it happen? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The elders' watchfulness then for trouble involves watching out for spiritual trouble. Ultimately, the matter of the church's teaching and your believing is a matter of spiritual teaching. Now, whenever demons get mentioned in the Bible, everyone's ears perk up. Because demons are interesting. Some of you may be obsessed with demons. Uh, they love it when you're obsessed with demons. Some of you may be, uh, you may hate demons. You ignore them completely because you don't want to be like those people who are obsessed with deacons. Well, they love demons. Excuse me, not deacons. <laughs> they love it when your uh, deacons are not demons. Um, I suppose sometimes in some churches, deacons can be demons, but not here. No, no, no. Demons, Satan would be very happy for you to obsess with uh, demons or demonology. I've got a whole book in my office. I have lots of books on bad things. That's part of an elder and pastor's job is to know what's out there. I got a big book on demons like that, how to figure their names out, uh, their domains. I'm like, man, the more I've got to know my Bible, there isn't that much to say. No, in God's wisdom, he has given us some insight into this. But he hasn't given us a whole lot. He hasn't told us what to do with them. He hasn't certainly told us to search them out in their names and their, their domains. But we know that they're there. They're not to be obsessed over, but they're not to be ignored. They are in our prayers and in our leadership and in our life certainly to be acknowledged. Well, elders are those who know who they're leading a spiritual people saved from spiritual bondage who are a spiritual offense to the invisible powers and principalities as this very gathering here in this church of redeemed sinners is proof to demons that God is really good and he's more powerful than they are. And we are indeed also a people under spiritual attack for that reason and because we are a people created by and sustained by truth, we are a people under attack at exactly that point of truth. 
How do demons get their work done? How do they assault the truth of the gospel and the word and the life of the church? I've never seen a demon on a street corner or preaching on TV. Sometimes street corner preachers and TV preachers, I think, might actually look like demons. But I don't think I've ever actually seen a demon. No, they do it. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Elders watch out for spiritual trouble. And secondly, elders watch out for troublemakers. They watch out for troublemakers. They're liars, he says, which means they, they speak in order to deceive, to use words in order to lead you away from the word. He says they're, they're insincere. Their faith isn't really true faith. They also don't care. They've been at it for a while because their consciences are seared, burnt over, cauterized so that the nerves don't feel anything. They don't care about you. Oh, they're deceivers, so they know how to put on a show. They may be the most attractive, most compelling, but they don't care, even if they did, not anymore. There are all different kinds of false teachers in the church. Tim Challies has kind of listed them out helpfully, gathering from different verses, and obviously some are many at one time. The heretics who deny the master in blatant terms, that God, Jesus, is not the Christ. He was not a man. He was not God. You have the charlatan who's out for personal gain. Godliness, they suppose, is a means of gain. We'll read about those in this book before it's over. Prosperity gospel preachers come to mind. You have the prophets who claim to speak for God, Oh, one sinister way that Satan entices his people away from the, what the Spirit has expressly said is by suggesting that through this person and that book and that teacher, Jesus and the Spirit is speaking in direct and authoritative, new and fresh ways. Certainly Mormonism would be the ultimate of this. You have dividers, those who just love a quarrel and they kick up all kinds of trouble and they use teaching because they love the They love the fight. They love the energy of a fight. You have the abuser, those who sneak into homes and harm. You have the the tickler, the one who isn't interested in teaching what God would have them, but what man wants to hear. And you have the speculator, the one who just loves to hear themselves talk. Some are all of them. Maybe some are several at a time, but there are all different kinds of liars who are insincere, whose consciences have been cauterized so that they have no feeling. And here's what this means it means that elders cannot assume the best about every person and what they want to teach. It means that elders cannot assume the best about every book that you might want to read. It means that elders cannot assume the best about every link that you might post on Facebook. And if ever you have an elder gently, graciously, and firmly exhort you away from this or that author or teaching, just thank God that they have the backbone to do it because it isn't hard. It isn't easy, excuse me. It's always hard. And it comes with costs. We don't know how you'll respond. And so 
engage us when that happens. Elders cannot assume the best. Assuming the best is a virtue though, right? Well, yes, but the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. But it's a Christian blogger. But they've said so many true things, but I resonate with them. But it's a Christian author. But it's a Christian preacher. But it's a Christian artist. But it's a Christian station. Yeah, and the demons are sinister, but they aren't stupid. They get the whole thing of how bait works, and they use it. They use a little truth, even a lot of truth, is bait for untruth to undermine it all. If elders are going to watch out for spiritual trouble and troublemakers, then elders watch out for troublesome teaching, specifically troublesome teaching, verses 3 through 5. What does troublesome teaching sound like to get specific now in terms of the troublesome teaching at Ephesus? What does troublesome teaching sound like? What is the kind of teaching that insincere liars peddle? What kind of teaching leads people to to depart from the faith? What is the teaching that the Spirit expressly warned against here? And what is the teaching that elders must in every age listen for and guard against And what is that teaching that you and I, apart from the Spirit's help and the leadership of Spirit-appointed elders, what is the teaching that you and I would be tempted to devote ourselves to? Well, here it is. The Spirit expressly says, verse 1, that in later times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Now, this is a scribal error. No, it's not. You would almost think it's a mistake. Like, well, whoever put this in here didn't like what was originally there. This is a mistake. No, really. The teaching of demons... The stuff that some are devoting themselves to that can lead them away from the faith. Um, that which Timothy is there for to, to guard the church against is the forbiddance of marriage and those who would require abstinence from foods. It, it almost sounds, sounds kind of Christian, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound kind of Christian? Two prohibitions involving two human appetites. Appetites that can easily be abused, if not under the control of the Spirit. Appetites that, when abused, have done so much harm to so many. It's easy to see why rules would be made against them that say they are wrong in themselves. Paul lauded the virtues of singleness, after all, did he not? And fasting is a good thing, is it not? Well, yes, exactly. Why is this teaching so troublesome? It's not like they're being taught to reject God. Here's why. Verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. 
You see, they aren't teaching anyone to reject God. They aren't teaching anyone to reject God. Only, only the goodness of God. Only the gifts of God. Only to reject the purpose of God in giving those gifts. Because God has created things good and given them as gifts to be received, which is his purpose. In order that he might receive thanksgiving. So they forbid you the enjoyment that God intended you to have in his good creation. And they forbid God the thanks that is due him. Paul gives like three lines to this matter of the character of God and his purpose and his goodness. It's not a side note. It is what's at stake. The goodness of God for you. And the goodness of God that rebounds in thankfulness and praise to him. And again, demons aren't dumb. They are sinister, but they're also smart. And they know that we like to abstain from things that are enjoyable because it makes us feel holy. It is an artificial way to measure godliness. Do you conceive of your own maturity as a Christian in terms of what you don't do? And then are there certain things that you don't do? By all means, don't do things that God commands you not to do. And obey those commands from faith. But are there certain things that you don't do and that you express to others that you don't do and that you make sure others don't do that the Bible says nothing about? Are there certain things that you don't do and have forbidden others not to do that in fact the Bible presents as a gift of God? It seems like the obvious question on the other side of this passage Satan's strategy for undoing the human race in the garden was exactly this. It was exactly this. He had Eve saying that God said not even to touch the tree when he'd said not to eat it. She imagined God to be stingy. And so it is Satan's strategy today. And so elders, it is our job to tell people what they should not do according to God's word. Elders, it is our job to tell people what they are free to enjoy with thanksgiving according to God's word. Elders, it is a part of our shepherding task to make sure that human rules about rejecting this and abstaining from that, that are not derived from scripture, are not held over our members, that one is not allowed to forbid another from the enjoyment of a gift of God, which they would otherwise receive with thanksgiving. Elders, it is our job to shepherd people to identify and receive and rejoice in and give thanks to God for his gifts, precisely because it is our job to see that God receives all of the thanks that is due him, and precisely because it is God's prerogative to give good good gifts to his children, and it is his desire and it is his purpose in giving those gifts that they would be received with joy. And the appetites that led some in this Ephesian environment to call those appetites ungodly in themselves were abused by the pagans around them. And they are easily abused in sin. But marriage and sexual engagement within the proper context of marriage are not unholy things. In fact, the proper enjoyment of God's good gift of sex is beautiful to him and rebounds in his thanks and is a good gift to gift to us when enjoyed properly in its proper place. So it is with food and drink and whatever else we might restrict. So he addresses 
A problem in Ephesus, whereby because of the abuse of things, two appetites that are good in themselves to be redeemed by the Spirit and the Christian were forbidden. But God is not a killjoy. He gives good gifts. And we are the people who know how to enjoy his good gifts by receiving them with thanksgiving, whether in the marriage bed or at the dinner table. Thanksgiving, not just for the gifts of God, but to, in all of these things, the God of the gifts. To the God of the gifts. If abstinence, friends, is not the proper response to God's gifts and the proper way to manage these appetites that can go so bad, then what is the proper response to these gifts? Verse 4. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And here, friends, we have a Bible verse for praying before our meals. Uh, shouldn't get old. Uh, make sure you do it, lest you become ungrateful for the food before you and deny God his thanks, lest you lose your joy in him and his gifts. So pray before you eat so that you won't depart from the faith. Pray before you mow the lawn. Pray before you lay mulch. Like I did yesterday, pray before you go on a jog. Pray before you take a test at school, students. Pray and thanks for a good friend. Pray and thanks for a day with your church. For the goodness of God, wherever you taste it, pray and receive those gifts with thankfulness to God, lest you depart from the faith. Devote yourselves to God and his truth and his teaching. One more thing, one more link in the chain. This will bump us back up to verse one. Elders watch out for troubled souls. The spirits and the demons who are deceitful, entice and lead some to lie and to deceive in their teaching. And they're all different kinds of false teachers. And there's very specific teaching that preys on people's specific vulnerabilities And then some will devote themselves to that teaching. They'll lock onto it and they'll give themselves to it and they will fall away. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to these kinds of teachings. An example of which we've explored. Every departure begins with a step. Apostasy starts with a troubled soul, a soul that is unsure of how good God is. A soul that isn't sure that Jesus is the only way, that faith in him is the only faith. A soul that prefers, oh, how easy this is to justify itself. A soul that takes comfort in prohibitions. How is it that so many who fall away were such good rule keepers? Certainly not all. Well, this is how. They were keeping those rules for themselves. They were trained to depend on their own righteousness. And so in the end, they didn't need Christ's. Maybe a soul that has such a bad experience with the abuse of human appetites that they tend to call God's good gifts bad for fear of those gifts being used for bad. And then they imagine God himself to be a withholder of joy. But friends, rejecting God's good gifts is the first step away from God, even if it feels like the way to stay close to him. 
Apostasy starts with a troubled soul, a soul that is famously and tragically thankless. Well, there are two ways to tell a forgery in this matter. Two ways to tell a forgery. And they almost always go together. There's an objective way and there's a subjective way. The objective test, does the teaching align with scripture? Not is the teaching substantiated with and include verses and references and scriptural language, but does the teaching accord with the apostolic faith handed handed down? Then a subjective test. Does this teaching produce thankfulness in those who hold it? As a general pattern, those who know and believe the truth, who know and believe the truth truly, will rebound in thanks to God for they'll know him truly and themselves truly. They'll know themselves to be great sinners, the foremost of sinners, and God to be the giver of great, abundant, overflowing mercy in Jesus Christ. Because the soul that knows God is generous and good and overflowing with gifts will overflow with thanks to him. And the soul that prefers instead the gifts that they can give to God will not overflow with thankfulness to him. Thankless self-denial may feel more spiritual. And it appears that that was the problem in Ephesus, at least it threatened, but it is not. God prefers, and hear this as the good news that the gospel brings God prefers thankful satisfaction, even thankful indulgence in his gifts for his glory. And so elders, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus, who is the way, who is himself, the truth and the life. Jesus, who was himself lied about. Jesus, who was himself called a fake on display for all to see. Jesus, who did not come to take from us, creeping in with deceit. But Jesus, who came at great cost to himself and told the truth to save us. And brothers and sisters, remember the trustworthy saying, a trustworthy saying which is deserving of full acceptance of your full devotion that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. No, my friends, God is not stingy and never doubt the goodness of God. And as if he knew we would be so prone to forget because he did, Jesus gave us a way of remembering God's goodness and his salvation in our life together, which is through the Lord's table, which is before us right now. Jesus in his wisdom and in his kindness has baked this very sign of his broken body and of his shed blood for us into the life and into the rhythm of his people so that we would never forget the goodness of God, so that we would never depart from the faith. And as often as we do this, we are reminded that we're his and we are held closely to one another in it for we do it together. So let's share in it together. The symbol of the bread and the cup has a very particular meaning. The bread represents the body which was broken for us on the cross as Jesus hung there suffering in the place of sinners to take our sin away. 
And the blood represents his blood, which was spilled for us. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. It represents the only truth and the only faith and the only way that we can know him. This is the meaning of the sign that we're about to take. I need to say that this symbol of the bread and the cup is for those that know the Lord, whose robes are, are white, washed with his, his blood, who are forgiven. And so if Christ's death is for you, not your salvation, if this truth of the gospel is not the only truth, if it is not the faith for you, not just your faith, but the faith, the only faith, if you're not savingly in Christ, then we'd ask you to watch this morning and come to Christ in salvation. For those of you who do know Christ, we're commanded to do this and to partake of this sign in an examining way, to examine our own selves as we do, to remember our great need for Christ, that's why he had to go to the cross, and to remember his great provision through his death. So now let's bow our heads together and examine ourselves in a few moments of quiet prayer. Father in heaven, we're forgetful people. We would not hold fast to the truth were it not for your spirit's work to hold us to it and to hold it out before us week in, week out through the word read, sang, prayed, preached, and through the word Christ remembered in the sign that we're about to share in. We examine ourselves. Father, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to be convicted of sin, to acknowledge any sin that is in us, to confess it before you and to share now in the bread, remembering Christ's death to take that sin away. In Christ's name we pray, amen.